Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Today's interview was recorded、uh, this Labor Day weekend at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival in my hometown of Lenox, Massachusetts. It's an interview with singer Cat Edmondson, who hails from Austin, Texas.、Uh, last year at Tanglewood, I met Joe Laurie,、uh, another wonderful singer who hails from、uh, Australia. And Joe and、uh, her partner James Ship, who's also、uh, in the band with her, went on to become、uh, good friends of mine. And this、uh, festival, I met Cat Edmondson and her musical partner Kevin Lovejoy, who plays piano in the band and、uh, does a lot of the arranging. And we really just、uh, hit it off.、Uh, two fantastic people. Uh, had a lot in common, and it's just one of those,、uh, you know, kind of instant connections where you think these are people、uh, worth knowing and that you're happy to know. If you are on the East Coast,、uh, you have、uh, some rare chances to see Cat. If you're in Boston, she's performing tomorrow, November 10th, at 8 p.m. at Scullers. Tuesday, November 10th at 8 p.m. at Scullers, and then she's in New York City at the Jazz Standard for two shows on November 11th at 7:30 and 9:30. That's at the Jazz Standard in New York on Wednesday, November 11th. So definitely take those chances because.、Uh, Two nights later, she's back in Texas, and、uh, if you're in Texas, you can see her、uh, all the time, and you really should go check her out in Austin. But、uh, if you're on the East Coast here, you should take these opportunities:、uh, Boston on Tuesday and New York on Wednesday,、uh, to check out some music from Cat Edmondson. Her new CD is called "Take to the Sky."、Uh, it's really wonderful, and、uh, it begins this way.
My guest is Kat Edmondson. Her new album is called Take to the Sky, and uh, we're recording this, as you can probably hear, uh, inside the, the merchandise tent at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival. Welcome to Tanglewood. Hi, Jason. Thank you. You're welcome. This is, in fact, my hometown, so I feel like I can welcome you to the Berkshires. So well, I love it. We're very glad you're here. Your home is lovely. Thank you very much. I own all of this, actually. Everything <laughs> you can see. <laughs> I'll be giving out pieces after the show. Oh, I'll be waiting in line. Then. That's very nice. So, um, first of all, let's talk about uh, about the new record. Uh, congratulations, first of all. It's a fantastic record. Thank you. And uh, can you talk about some of the musicians uh, who are on it with you? It's a really fine band. Absolutely. Um, first and foremost, Kevin Lovejoy plays on the record. He's a piano player and, uh, incidentally, arranged and produced the record. Um, there's a wonderful bass player named Eric Rivas. And a saxophone player named John Ellis, a trombone player named Ron Westray. Um, J.J. Johnson plays drums, and a percussionist named Chris Lovejoy, who is related to the piano player, Kevin Lovejoy. <laughs> now, how did you and Kevin uh, meet? You guys seem like a really good pairing musically. Thank you. Um, I had been sitting in at a jazz jam on Monday nights at a club called The Elephant Room in downtown Austin, Texas. And... Uh, befriended a trumpet player named Ephraim Owens, who uh, often plays with Kevin. And and Kevin had just recently picked up a gig uh, at a club on 6th Street in Austin and needed a singer. He wanted uh, to accompany a singer, but didn't know uh, who, to, who to ask to play with him. And he'd been out on the road for some time, actually touring with uh, a pop band and returned to play jazz and Ephraim recommended that he call me. Ephraim and I had been playing a little bit together and so he called me on the telephone and he asked me to uh, come play with him at, at his show. It was actually a last minute phone call. Um, I think he was asking me to play that night in fact and um, I thought he was crazy and at the time music was very new to me. I had I'd, um, sung quite a bit but I um, I was just getting into actually performing out live and, uh, and, and seeing as he hadn't heard me before. I, I thought he was nuts to ask me to come <laughs> sing with him that night. And um, if I recall correctly, that was the last uh, day of, of my job, actually. I was a cocktail waitress, and I, I just quit my job, and so I was, I was turning in my last evening at my job. And he encouraged me to just uh, leave my job not going since it was my last day of work and just join him um which made me think him even even more crazy so i <laughs> hung up the phone thinking i'd never speak with him again and uh and he pursued me uh the following week and ultimately we ended up getting together and and i performed for him and um and we we played a gig together after that and then and another one and then another one and now we pretty much play exclusively together Show me, show me, show me How you do that trick One that makes me scream, she said One that makes me laugh, she said And threw her arms around my neck And show me how you do it And I promise you 
I promise that I'll run away with you. I'll run away with you. I am. I think a decade older than you, but I'm going to say our age to make myself feel better. I'm always amazed when anyone our age uh-huh. is um, kind of into music from the past. And you and I spoke a little bit last night, and I think there's some of similar reasons why we're into this music. But will you talk a little bit about your upbringing and why you started listening to this music that is now much of it is 70 or 80 years old? Sure. Well, um, I began listening to this music through my mother, who learned to love this music through her her mother and father. So... I guess you could say it started with my grandparents, um, who loved big band music. My mom would play their records and, and her records that she collected uh, in the house um, when I was very young, probably two or three. And then uh, she also exposed me to a lot of old pictures with the repertoire and, and, and actors and dancers singing this music, like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and Danny Kaye and... And so uh, it became my foundation for music, essentially. It was the first music that I was really um, immersed in, and, and so I grew to love it. It's interesting, though, uh, because many people, the music that their parents listen to is the music they don't listen to. Hmm. Um, why do you think that wasn't the case for you? You know, I was an only child... And perhaps maybe a strange child. <laughs> um, I actually spent a lot of time with older people. We, we, uh, I, I grew up with my mom. Um, my, my father was not around. And, um, and my grandparents actually weren't around. They passed away when I was very young. But um, my godmother, uh, one of my grandmother's best friends, uh, was, was the other family member that was around. And she was in her late 70s so um, whether or not I liked it and I just I guess I never uh, took the time to decide whether or not I did um, that music was on you know and she also played the organ so she would she would tap her toes to the music and play the organ and um, and I just I just knew it very well and somehow related to all of the actors in the movies and all of the singers on the records and um, and perhaps it was a way to to be really close with my godmother and um, and and kind of admire my mother's hipness, you know, because I thought it was really cool that she'd shake her hips and, and sing along to all the words and 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 that was that. I, I was spending a lot of time with older people primarily, and so related to them, you know. Now I know uh, music wasn't what you initially pursued. I know you went to school in Charleston, right? And you were going to study, or you were studying interior design, right. is that right? Yeah. And so, at some point here, I mean, you've gone in a, a fairly quick time from completely other career tracks, or possibly no actual career track, to all of a sudden you've got an album out, you're touring. I mean, how to walk us through some of the steps here in between? I'm going to college for interior design, and I'm performing at festivals. You know, I should tell you, first off, that I always envisioned myself performing. Um, so it didn't come as a surprise to me that I might do this. Uh, it was just a surprise to everyone else, because <laughs> in retrospect, I never really communicated that to anyone, you know. It was just this little secret that I knew. And um, I went to college because I I had somehow convinced myself that it, that you can't make a living being a, a musician or a performer or something. I don't know who told me that. A lot of people, I'm sure. And so... I'm sure other musicians and performers. Yes, yeah. yes. 
And so um, I thought, well, I have a knack for design and decorating. I'll go study that. And um, and so I went to Charleston, which was uh, furthest enough east from Texas, uh, but still in the south. Um, which was uh, the north was seemingly intimidating at the time. I'm loving it now. <laughs> and uh, and and so. I went to go study, and I was also uh, putting myself through school and working full-time. And I very much looked forward to sneaking into this blues club um, after work at night and, and singing um, this place called Mama's Blues. And uh, I realized that I was getting so much joy out of it. That's all I really wanted to focus on. It was distracting me from both my work and, and school. And at the end of the year, I found that school was getting very expensive and, and I might be best to go home and, and save some money. So I went back to Texas um, thinking that I would return to school and some of my credits didn't transfer. So I got a job while I was waiting for... Um, uh, I was going to register in a community college and then, and then eventually go to University of Texas. Well, the job that I took... Uh, was 60 hours a week and it was a fantastic job so I decided to delay my schooling uh, so I could make a little money because I was pretty hand to mouth and then once I started doing that um, uh, time passed by and I missed a semester or two and then when it was when I was ready to go back to school I registered and I was driving home and I heard um, a country song on the radio some guy was singing about how he never went to class and he always uh, stayed around uh, his room playing for his friends and I laughed to myself and thought how much that was like me and then I was totally frightened in that very same moment because I realized that I might not be so dedicated to school and that I might just find myself wanting to veer away and do music and I went home and I uh, I called up the school and I told them that I was uh, dropping out again and then I picked up the paper and I looked for bands that were hiring singers and I began making phone calls and it was right then that I decided to be serious about it and pursue music and uh, that began my my musical career if you will I started collaborating with musicians singing at open mics joining other musicians and then uh, eventually found the jazz jam this blues jam uh, where I uh, started getting my chops if you will and uh, then I met Kevin, and then we started working our repertoire, and thus we have our album now, my first album. in there there there's got to be an element of like serendipity or something because i mean there's a lot especially you live in austin which you know is 
uh, everybody always says is a the one section of Texas that is unlike any other and is stuffed to the gills with great musicians. So it seems like you know, kind of being able to rise out of a place like that. It sounds very difficult to me. Is there? Did something happen? Was there some moment? Was there a series of things that you did that kind of got you to rise up above the crowd, so to speak? You know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head except that since I've put my album out, uh, I've been accumulating a fan base over time, and I've been singing in Austin for about four years now. Quit my day job three and a half, four years ago. And I, I really didn't know what kind of fan base I was accumulating because I didn't have a record out. I didn't have any way to track fans. I knew that I saw some familiar faces out at shows and I was singing five or six nights a week. So I think I was getting some pretty good exposure. But all of a sudden when my record came out, it, the, the record was uh, one of the top selling records in town and, and then there was this huge article that came out in the paper and all of a sudden people started coming out to shows and acting like I was some big thing. <laughs> it felt very strange, you know. They wanted my autograph all of a sudden. So... Somewhere along the line, it, it just kind of the, the cup ran over, and everybody knew uh, what was going on. Um, but it did take a lot of time, you know. And I, and frankly, I think it was because I was singing so often uh, each week that I was just getting out there and, and making myself known. Does it seem to you like everyone else thinks it's an overnight success, and for you, it's been like a, they you know, a decade do. or whatever? In, the in fact, many interviews that I've had, people have referred to me as that, and, and I could tell, assure them that it's quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, but let's talk about the new album. Um, can you talk about how you chose the repertoire uh, that would be on it? Absolutely. Uh, a, a lot of the music, uh, the standards primarily, just one of those things, um, night and day. They were songs that I sang and worked out in a very traditional way uh, at the clubs that I, I was singing at. The first tune um, that I chose for my record was The Cures, Just Like Heaven. And that's uh, an 80s rock tune for those that are listening and don't know who The Cure is. Uh, and uh, a, a British pop band. Um, I've always loved that song. And I brought it to Kevin a, a long time ago, a while back. And I told him, I really want to sing this song, but I, I don't know how we would incorporate it into our show. And he said, well, why don't we do it like a bossa? A bossa nova and we tried it and it worked and everybody loved it and so we became fascinated with this idea of crossing over tunes taking more contemporary tunes and, and putting them in a jazz context and and taking the uh, jazz tunes and putting them in more of a pop context the next tune that we we did that with was one fine day carol king's one fine day and um and the hard part was really when we decided to address the, the jazz tunes and kind of take them in the other direction. Um, and frankly, we've heard other people try and do it before, and we didn't, we didn't really care for what they were doing. So it was a fine line we were walking between, um, between like something very cool with a lot of integrity and something that's seemingly corny or, um, or show-tuny. So we just played around. We played around for about a year and a half working through all of this repertoire. And ultimately, the tunes on the record came to be what sounded best at our shows. Um, we, we tested them out every month at our gig at the Elephant Room, this basement club in Austin. And, and uh, the best ones were left standing. Now, uh, a saxophonist named Brent Anchell told me recently that one of the difficulties he had in adapting uh, kind of later pop music to a jazz context was that when it came time to improvise there wasn't much meat there it's true to play over can you talk a little bit about that how you guys have dealt with that 
Um, a lot of pedaling, you know, and uh, uh, to create um, more chord movement. Uh, you can run into problems like that with pop music, primarily just because you're dealing with an entirely different chord structure. But um, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I didn't deal with it as much as Kevin did, as he was the arranger. Uh, I think he's done a very good job, but it's, it's very important um, what tunes you choose. You know, there are a lot of tunes that uh, I was interested in working with, and when we actually sat down at the piano, we found that uh, they just sound a lot better as, as they are. So right. leave those alone and move on. <laughs> Fine day, you look at me, and then you know our love was meant to be. One fine day, you're gonna walk me for your girl. The arms I long for. Open wide And then you want to have me By your side One fine day You're gonna want me for your girl Now you, uh, you talked about developing a fan base in Austin when you were performing there regularly and um I'd like to know more about your fan base. Who, what kind of people come to Academies and show? Oh, no one's ever asked me that before, and that's a cool question because I'm always thinking about it. Um, well, all sorts of people, actually. Um, people my age, which is always um, the most pleasant surprise because I don't always expect that. And then uh, ages all the way up in, in, uh, to people in their 70s and 80s. Actually, Kevin and I recently did a private performance for a woman who was 93 and uh, and it was one of the scariest shows I've ever done. I was so nervous because she knew the music inside and out, and I was I was really worried what she might think of of me performing them. She actually also personally knew Bing Crosby and, and Errol Flynn, <laughs> wow. and all these really fabulous people. So, um, needless to say, I was nervous, but it turned out well, and we were fast friends because uh, we had so much in common. All ages. That's the exciting thing. In fact, I have friends that tell me that their kids really like this music. You know, um, my five-year-old daughter loves this record, and so I think it just translates. and And that's kind of my motto: good music is good music. And I think when it's good, it just it just uh, relates to everyone. Now, is there a uh, is there a, a demographic to use the the marketing term? I mean, that you guys are that you guys are going after. I mean, is there a are there people that you, these are the folks that we're aiming for in our shows, and then all these other folks are coming, and that's great, too. I wonder, do you, do you approach that from a musical standpoint? We're arranging these tunes because we hope to reach these kind of people. I have to say we're pretty selfish. We think of ourselves first, and then, um, and then we assume that there's a certain kind of crowd that might, crowd that might like us, um, the crowd that uh, appreciated the people that have done what we're doing uh, already. For example, Cassandra Wilson. Um, someone might really like my music that, that likes her music. But then um, we're making a lot of musical references uh, and uh, allusions to um, a lot of performers in the past. And I, I often sing um, Blossom Deary's music um, in homage to her. She's, she's a lovely person. I actually got to hear her sing uh, 
Danny Scarlet Lounge uh, right before she passed away and and so maybe anyone that would like her music as well and and just the, you know the obvious one anyone that might like Nora Jones you know might like this music um, I, w- I guess I, I will say that we're often thinking about um, the younger demographic that might be excluded who doesn't necessarily know this music that could potentially appreciate it um, uh, which is why we're bringing in a lot of these tunes um, uh, that that they would appreciate. For example, the Cure tune and, and incorporating a lot of grooves like the backbeat that um, that might um, uh, woo the the hipster's ear. So, um, <laughs> so I guess I can say yes. We we often think about them, and and it's always it feels like a big success when I get to see people uh, in in like Converse and bands hanging out at my shows. I feel like that's a feather in my cap. <laughs> I'd just like to say that if your next album isn't called Woo the Hipster's Ear, I'm not buying it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a cool title. Or at least a tune. That's know? exactly right. Woo the Hipster's Ear. All right. That's very nice. I dig it. Um, one of the things uh, in kind of learning about you that I came across was the Be the Change tune in the video uh-huh. um, that accompanied it, which seemed like a, a fantastic way to use your talent. Can you tell folks what that was and, and what its impact was? Sure. Uh, during the um, presidential election, actually during the primaries, I put out a song called Be the Change um, to encourage voting. And uh, yes, the song is a bit slanted because my views are, <laughs> are pretty liberal. But um, but the song was... was uh, we, we wrote the song after Gandhi's uh, uh, quotation the change you wish to see in the world and and we really felt like that was the message that we wanted to send and when I say we I was I'm meaning uh, Kevin Lovejoy we actually write quite a bit together um, uh, originals and things so we put that out and uh, we really really wanted to send the message of the importance of voting in this election and um, we were really inspired to bring up a lot of topics that weren't being sung about in fact I was feeling frustrated when we first started writing the song because a lot of the pop music that I was hearing was about my cell phone and my jeans and my boyfriend and my behind and ev- and everything. That's <laughs> and then I just felt like, well, it's so. Um, and you're saying that that doesn't reflect Gandhi's values? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a bold statement. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'll go out on a limb and That's say. Right. Thank you. You heard it here first. <laughs> and so I just felt like, you know. Where did that go? People used to sing about what was important. People used to really step out and say what they what they believed in, and um, especially in a time you know that that we were experiencing and are experiencing um, in the world. So, so we wrote "Be the Change," and uh, we weren't quite sure how to market it because we were just nobodies with this song, uh, and we didn't want it just to sit on the shelves, on the iTunes shelves. Uh, so. We made a video uh, to accompany it, and we went out on the streets of Austin and gave people cardboard signs and asked them what they would do if they were president. And uh, it was really compelling what people wrote and, um, and really exciting to watch this video unfold. We did it in a matter of days and then um, put out the video on YouTube and it received over 100,000 views. And then it landed on NPR and um, CNN. And, uh, and, and so people, people heard it and, and 
got the message, I think. There were actually schools incorporating this song into their curriculum the following year, which was really neat. That's amazing. Everywhere you look, you can write a book on what's going on. Everyone you know's got to reap what they sow, be it right or wrong. There's a hole up in the sky Oil and blood, tell me why, oh why Terrorstruck, look at us This isn't what we planned You gotta take a stand Don't forget that pride always goes before the fall And nobody's free till there's freedom for all As you sow, so shall you reap change that you want to see Boy, yeah. be the change that you want to see you just mentioned a lot of people like uh, folks like Nora Jones Cassandra Wilson although Cassandra Wilson I think is in a category separate from the other folks that you mentioned and I even think of like Nellie Mackay and Jamie Cullum is it easier or harder for someone like you because those people are already out there doing what you're doing you know I would uh, I'll just say that it's, it's not harder because um, because I'm really trying to follow my own path and although we're all kind of doing seemingly similar things from the outside um, I keep trying to pinpoint that thing that I do uh, that nobody else does, and don't ask me what that is. <laughs> All right, <laughs> no follow-up. <laughs> I don't know, but um, but I keep trying to just remain there in that place, and um, and then I think there's room for all of us uh, if if we're all kind of pursuing that. Is it is that a challenge? I mean, it seems like there'd be a lot of external pressure to to follow a particular path, maybe an easier path to record sales or whatever. Is it is it tough to maintain kind of your artistic integrity and stay true to yourself? Can you rephrase the question? <laughs> Can I make it less an indictment of the major labels? Um, <laughs> no, I probably can't. Well, let me just ask. Okay, so um, how do you uh, pursue success and pursue artistic success at the same time? Okay. I always go for what feels right first. And, and though that might be a risk at, at some point in the process... Um, uh, I usually um, get a little bit uh, stoked by that because I know that when I'm getting to that risky place that it's potentially something that could either be great or could really fail. And and the greatness is something I'm always working towards. So, God, that, gosh, that's just the most important thing to maintain the integrity, um, even more so than the sales. And I have to say that I'm working hard every day to promote my record and sell my record. It's how I make a living, and it's how I'm going to be able to continue doing what, what it is that I love. So I'm always thinking about that, and I would be lying if I said that I wasn't. You know, I'm not comfortable living in a shoebox staring at the wall and and not going out and just being a musician. It's, I wish I, I, I could be, but I'm not. So um, so the, the sales have to have to be some sort of thought, but... But once I've created the music, I usually feel so comfortable with it that I'm, uh, 
I'm often assuring myself that everyone else is going to like it too, and maybe that's <laughs> a bit ignorant, but it's it's the direction that I've gone so far, and it's working. Now, I first heard about you from uh, another singer and, and songwriter named Kate Shutt. Um, uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about how you met Kate? And Yes, Kate uh, actually heard me singing at a restaurant called Eddie V's in Austin, a steak restaurant, um, where I sang every Wednesday night, and she was visiting um, three years ago at the South by Southwest Festival and was there with friends and, and heard me singing and uh, came up and asked me to sing a particular song. I don't know what. Maybe she could tell you. And so I sang it. And then uh, she was impressed that I knew what song she requested and she requested another and then another and then another. And uh, little did I know that she was uh, keeping score. But, um, <laughs> but apparently I knew all the songs that she requested. And she went back and she told her friends, you know, I have to go now, but but please uh, keep tabs on this girl, whoever she is. And um, and she actually uh, went back to Canada and uh, was gone. But she inquired to her friends, who was that person? Nobody knew what my name was. And uh, she said, well, if you ever see her again, please grab her and don't let her go and tell her that we're going to have a house concert together. And so two years later, uh, one of her friends came up to me and said, it's you. And so <laughs> she... Um, Inform me that I'd be playing a house concert with Kate Shedd, you know, would that be all right? And I said, yes, uh, let me listen to her music first. And, um, and then I went online and heard her, and I was just really thrilled that she wanted to do it. So we set up a concert, and it went over very well. And uh, that night, she asked me if I wanted to go on tour with her, a tour that she had set up in the Northeast. And we did. We toured in, in May and June, and we went to World Cafe Live in Philly, and then... Um, and then a jazz standard in New York, and so it was a lot of fun. Uh, what's coming up for you? What's on the calendar? Well, I'll actually be returning to the Northeast in November. I'm going to go back to the jazz standard, back to World Cafe, hoping to land a gig some other clubs. Um, I'm knocking on Scholar's door as we speak. <laughs> I hope they answer. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I'm working on more material, actually. Um, but on Sunday, I'm going to be performing at the Tanglewood Jazz Festival in the Jazz Cafe tent. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, I thank you for taking the time to be on the jazz session. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and lots of success. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks. Dear, I fear we're facing a problem. You love me no longer, I know. Maybe there is nothing there. For you to love me, love me. 
Edmondson from her album Take to the Sky. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane, and I'm also reminding you that you can see Cat in Boston tomorrow, November 10th at 8 p.m. at Scholars, and then on Wednesday, November 11th at 7.30 and 9.30 p.m., she'll be at the Jazz Standard in New York City. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also archived and available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This show has an email mailing list. You can sign up for it by clicking on the mailing list link at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook and you just type the Jazz Session into the search box, you'll also find a Facebook group for the show. The theme music for this program is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>